Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, it's great to see you. Happy New Year. How you doing? Good. Hey, Andrew. It's great to be back. Happy New Year to you and all the uh, listeners out there. That's right. Happy New Year to the listeners. Happy New Year to Tashi. I think 2023 is going to be a big year for the Sharp China podcast, so I'm excited to get rolling here. Um, We have a lot of news to catch up on. We're going to have fewer questions from the listeners. We'll get back to those next week. You can send questions to email at sharpchina.fm. You can also leave questions in the comments in Bill's open thread on cynicism, which he posts every Friday. Uh, and we'll have a lot of fun. It'll be more of a mailbag episode next week. We've gotten some good questions already. Uh, for now, though, let's start with the continuing reopening across China, which was probably the biggest story in the world for the past few weeks. And when we last talked, China was sort of in the first inning of the reopening, and it wasn't clear exactly what it was going to look like. We're now about a month into this process. What do we know about where things stand right now? Like, do we know whether the worst phases of this are over? Uh, it depends where you are. It looks like the uh, uh, new cases have peaked in some of the major cities like Beijing and Shanghai, um, but it is spreading. I mean, it's all over the country. And, you know, certainly even though cases, maybe new cases have peaked, uh, there is always the lag between getting sick and getting in the folks then who unluckily get really sick or die tragically. And so um, it it's not clear that they've peaked in terms of the number of serious illnesses or deaths in some of the big cities. And uh, now we're heading into the annual uh, migration for Chinese New Year, for the Lunar New Year, where people, uh, migrant workers head home. And in a normal year, it's hundreds of millions of people. And so the, the expectation is that it's and that, that migration really starts – the Lunar New Year this year, I think, is the 21st, 22nd of January. The mm-hmm. migration usually starts within two to four weeks before that. So there are already a lot of people on the move. So the assumption is that the, um, the virus is already spreading into rural areas. I mean, the reality is – it's all, like the key word I used was assumption or it appears or it seems like is because there's no good data. The, the Chinese government is no longer announcing new cases. They officially like – I think less than a dozen people have died from COVID, um, which is it's a joke, not yeah. a joke. It's it's a tragedy. It's but it's just absolutely absurd. And so uh, people are flying blind, clearly from uh, just friends, uh, friends, family members, from other anecdotal sources and videos going around. A lot of people tragically have died, and you know it's going to be. I think. Uh, there's going to be there's a lot of pain and suffering right now. I mean, China, unfortunately, is going through what most of the rest of the world went through. They, de- they delayed it. They were able to defer it for two and a half years, with the exception of Wuhan at the beginning in uh, 2020. But now they're dealing with what we, you know, we still have a few hundred people die- a day dying here. I mean, it just it, this thing doesn't seem to go away. And China, I think Omicron finally just overwhelmed all their defenses and they had no choice but to open up. And so now we're just, they're just going to have to grind through it. And, and, you know, the hope is a lot of people recover, they get some immunity. You're starting to see signs of life um, and activity returning in the big cities. And um, so it's, it's very much a mixed bag, but it's really frustrating because the Chinese government is, is really is reverting to its usual sort of no transparency or little transparency mode. Yeah, well, and it's interesting. You wrote about this, about the jarring juxtaposition of news stories about the reopening and all these New Year's celebrations. And like, there's also many, many stories about the global implications of this shift. And then there are other stories about overcrowded crematoriums and deaths and just staggering numbers of infections. Like back in December, it was reported or it was announced by the government that there were 37 million infections in one day. So it's you see China going through what the rest of the world went through, but on a scale that is unlike anything else in the entire world. And um, it's just a reminder, you know, like one out of every five or six stories is a reminder that this is a human tragedy yeah. and hopefully the Chinese people could get through it as quickly as possible. Yeah, no, that's the hope. And I mean, when you said that the government didn't actually announce that there have been 37 million cases, those were leaked minutes from a, a, ah. a meeting of the National Health Commission that appeared to have been verified that said, I think 
right before Christmas, the Friday before Christmas was at number 37 million. And to that point, they said there'd already been over 200 million people who tested positive. So, wow. um, you know, My this mistake. thing is, no, it, no, no, it's not, it's, it seemed out of character to, to have them announcing yeah, anything. And, and, and I think they're not, you know, they, they got as part of the switch from dynamic zero COVID to dynamic, let it rip. Uh, over a month ago, you know, they got rid of most of the testing. So those numbers are also just estimates based on sample sizes, not actual totally accurate data. So no, it's it just it's just going to rip through the country. And the hope is that that, you know, they they reclassified or they sort of started talking about it as it should be called um, coronavirus cold to sort of talk about how with Omicron, it's a much it's a much less dangerous uh, virus. You know, so the hope, I think what they're saying is that the death rate should be below 0.1%. Um, but you know, if it's a billion people get it, that's still close to a million people. Yeah. And it's not clear that that number is accurate. We just don't know. Uh, I think what's been quite shocking to some people was to see how quickly the health system in a place like Beijing, which has the best medical infrastructure in China was, was, um, so quickly, so heavily stressed and how many people mostly elderly have been dying, including a fair number of um, sort of elite retired Beijingers, people who were had been, you know, relatively senior officials in government or luminaries in the arts or academia or the sciences. And it's just, it's, it's brutal. And it, you know, we have to see how that, I mean, we don't know how it's going to play out, but I think that the big fear and certainly the government this week has, has been, you know, they, they just, they made the switch and there are various theories about why um, mm-hmm. I don't, we don't have a great answer exactly why, but I think one of the, one of the main reasons was basically they just, Omicron was already spreading so quickly that by the, by early November, there was, it was impossible to stop it. So it was a recognition of reality, but they, um, they didn't do anything to stock up for fever reducing benefit medications or pain relievers, or um, they just, they just didn't prepare and they didn't prepare people and so now they're scrambling to prepare the rural areas and to push out, you know, they've, they've, this week they pushed out a new guideline on traditional Chinese medicine formulas that can be used to help people and yep. sort of reduce discomfort and, and quicken recovery. But they're doing that because they don't, you know, they don't have enough Paxlovid, you know, there's still not enough people who are vulnerable, who are vaccinated. The people who are vaccinated and boosted tended to have been boosted a while ago. And it's not clear that the vaccine is that efficacious against Omicron. So it's just, it's a, it's a mess quite honestly. And we're all just sort of grasping at sort of trying to figure out what's going on and looking for various bits of alternative data to serve as a proxy for sort of how many people are sick, how many people are dying, is the economy starting to recover, et cetera. And it, it's just, it's just, it's, I mean, again, but we, you know, you, you brought this up earlier. It's really, you know, it's easy to abstract away into talking about economic data or, but you know, there's just there's just so many human tragedies underway right now. It's really it's heartbreaking to see, you know, again another country have to go through this, and one that I think most of the people there really believe that they had been able to escape this, and yet it comes for everybody at some point. Yeah, well, and and as we move forward, I mean, the lack of information is beginning to upset other countries around the world. I read that the WHO is frustrated here. And and I just wonder whether that will alter the Chinese government's behavior. And if not, then what the rest of the world will end up doing. Like, I think that's going to be something to watch over the next few weeks. Well, you have a, a handful of countries um, more and more by the day who are requiring you know, the border, the Chinese border with China is effectively opening this weekend. They're getting rid of the all the restrictions officially, even though some of them have already dropped off. You'll still be required to have a negative PCR test within 48 hours of getting on a flight to China. And now a bunch of countries are saying, including the U.S., are saying that that uh, travelers from the PRC will need a f- PCR test within 48 hours to travel to their countries. And of course, the Chinese government is extremely They're upset pissed. by this, saying it's yeah. you know targeting us and. You know, and 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 the problem is, and and the reality is, I don't think it does much uh, in terms of stopping the spread, especially when you look at the U.S. and you know, there's the spread of this other new variant that's you know all over Northeast, probably all over D.C. at this point. And but it's it's I think also it's it's a reflection of two things. One is the concern that because the Chinese are not sharing data in the way that even the, the WHO would like, it's it's. They're not able to do the kind of surveillance that would let them see more quickly the possibilities of any new variants arising in China. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the second is just that, though these this, these new testing requirements, it's not clear that they'll actually solve that problem. But the other bit, I think, is just frankly, a lot of governments are frustrated with the PRC and frustrated with the lack of transparency three years into the pandemic. I was going to say from the very beginning. So, yeah. so you know, sort of like a and, and every, you know, countries have domestic politics, and so politically, the politicians need to need to look to be doing something. Even if what they're doing doesn't actually do anything, because what what are we gonna you know someone shows up they 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 test negative they get on a plane to the U S then they test negative you know the day they did when they arrive what are we gonna do put them in quarantine we don't do that here right right it, it's not it, it's just like and, and you know it's also not gonna stop the spread of variants like three years no. into the pandemic we should understand that that sort of testing requirement doesn't actually accomplish anything but so but but it's just it's just more this sort of growing frustration with the with the with the government of beijing and also just the you know and then yesterday the chinese foreign ministry basically effectively threatened retali- you know retaliatory measures against countries that require this one of course like what are they going to do? Stop travel like they've been doing for the last three years? I mean, it's just like it's just it's just this sort of kind of unscientific, politically driven, unconstructive tit for tat. But yeah. ultimately, I mean, again, China could make this not be happening if they were sharing all the information they have. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because I think the Chinese government, I mean, I'll read the quote here. We believe that the entry restrictions adopted by some countries lack scientific basis and some excessive practices are even more unacceptable. Um, That's a case where it seems like it's the right message, but the Chinese government is the wrong messenger after what they've been doing over the last couple of years. (laughs) So um, it's kind of a tough spot, but... I, I hope that the fears related to variants are ultimately overblown um, and we'll just have to wait and see. That's the th- It is certainly unsettling sitting here knowing how many people are being infected across China and knowing that we are basically flying blind as to what that is doing to change right. the disease. And, so. and the Chinese side say they are uploading some samples to this genetic surveillance database, but based on the comments from the WHO on Wednesday, it's, they don't think it's enough. Yeah. I mean, the Chinese can rail all they want against the U.S. or the EU, but if the, if the WHO is also basically saying you're not doing enough, then they need to take it more seriously. And, and you know, this is, a, this is just a constant theme in the pandemic. And, you know, the problem, I think, for the, for the Chinese government is that full transparency, accurate data, even releasing it to, 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 to the WHO, it'll get out. And it's a domestic problem then because it's it's even though most people assume everybody's got it, I mean, there's a reason they're not disclosing the number of deaths. There's a reason mm-hmm. they've set the sort of classification for death from COVID in China to an ex, like an extremely narrow set of criteria that basically mean that that almost nobody officially dies from COVID. And so um Nobody believes it, but that's what they're going with. But so, so transparency is a problem domestically too. If they really let people understand the scale, sense. I mean, yeah. you just and people know. I mean, just there's these awful videos of you know bodies in bags stacked up in makeshift morgues. You know, terrible stories about yes. can't get cremated for a month. Um, just, just you know, people have their relatives have died and they're in their home. Their bodies are in their homes for days or over a week because there are no there are no hearses. There are no ambulances to come pick them up. I mean, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And you it, just wonder, really like horrifying. we've all, you yeah. know, this has happened. You know, you remember scenes from Manhattan in 2020, right. And scenes from India during the Delta wave. The thing is, I think is the problem for the Chinese government is, is up until November, this was never going to, this was the, the whole sort of triumphant propaganda around the, the communist party's COVID response was how we're different. It won't happen to us. And now it's all happening to them too. Yeah, well, and they're beginning to blame the West. Well, I think you know they're they're blaming sort of the you know unfair Western media coverage of people focusing on you know the the, the reports of long lines of crematoria and body bangs and makeshift morgues. I mean, even though you know, anyway, it's it's just. But I think it's it's a it's a sort of a common sort of fallback for them is if things get really bad, then just blame blame the U.S. Blame yeah. the West, but really blame the U.S. Yeah, well, it's an unbelievable tragedy. Um, and I, I did have one question on the economic side of all this. Uh, I'll read this note from Bloomberg. 
China is pausing massive investments aimed at building a chip industry to compete with the U.S. as a nationwide COVID resurgence strains the world's number two economy and Beijing's finances. People familiar with the matter said that top officials are discussing ways to move away from costly subsidies that have so far borne little fruit and encouraged graft and American sanctions. So the Chinese government was set to spend 1 trillion yuan, the equivalent of uh, 245 billion US dollars. So it was a pretty serious commitment. Um, What's your reaction to a report like that? I mean, this is a sharp departure from everything we've heard. Yeah. So, I mean, there was, I think, I think it was Bloomberg a few months ago reported this was happening. It was never actually confirmed that they were going to push out this trillion renminbi, which is, it's actually like 140 something million dollars thereabouts. Um, it, It was never officially confirmed. Doesn't mean it wasn't happening, but now Bloomberg saying it's not happening. It's possible that they had to do a U-turn. You know, the article from Bloomberg suggests because they don't have the money. And I think that a lot of the, the decisions around COVID and the, the shift in policies can be traced back to or have have as one of the big contributing factors, the fact that a lot of governments in China just are running out of money, the local governments, mm. because of all the, 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 the combination of the decline in economic activity as well as the the various like tax cuts, fee cuts to help people get through COVID, and then all the costs imposed on them uh, to deal with COVID. So it so I mean I think the short answer is it's too early to tell. You know the China that they they need a response to the really pretty harsh sanctions the U.S. put on the the PRC semiconductor industry. You know they've had this big thing called like the big fund, this chip fund over the years, it's it's Mm -hmm. had billions of dollars to invest and is now in the middle of a big graft investigation where uh, a whole bunch of the top executives are um, under investigation because, you know, they would, they get their money, they got to pick winners. And, uh, you know, the the rumor for a long time was there was a lot of corruption and you'd set up a side company and they take kickbacks, et cetera. Um, There was also, I think what I also heard was what, what spurred these investigations last summer was that there was a review of the progress of sort of how China was doing in terms of breaking the, some of the strangleholds that the U S has over the Chinese chip industry. And, and the, the, the officials realized that they'd been effectively lied to and that a progress has been exaggerated Uh, and that they were further behind than expected. And so it was like, we just, you know, this is not working. And, you know, these people have led us astray. And oh, by the way, of course, they're corrupt because there's so much money. So I think they're still struggling with what the best response is to kickstart domestic semiconductor development. Yeah, um, but it but it's there's no question. It, it, the, the the broader backdrop is that these export control sanctions the Biden administration put in place near the end of last year um, are really the most significant action in the technology area that the U.S. has probably ever done with China, and and they really they really are quite meaningful in terms of um, the the challenges they've created for China being able to build up its own semiconductor industry, at least in the short term. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know what to make of a report like this, because on the one hand, it could be an indication that the government's finances are worse than we realized. And and that's why they're pulling back. On the other hand, it could be just specific to this story where, as you said, if if the programs are bearing little fruit and there's all sorts of corruption investigations uh, related to it, then I, I certainly understand pressing pause. But all last year, it was framed as an existential issue for. No, it still is. It it still is. It's just going to be, I think, working through exactly how to address it in a way that doesn't um, that is affordable and doesn't just and works because because I think they they spent a lot of money and it hasn't gotten them the kind of return they wanted. Do we have any sense of of when the economy might start to see a rebound after reopening? Some of the data from December was not encouraging. No, but, the data but- so far from, for December has not been great. I mean, the problem always in the first couple of months of the year in China is that the Lunar New Year holiday, which usually falls sort of third or so week of January into maybe late January, early February, depending on the, the, the lunar cycle, uh, the, the data for the first two months is always a mess because you have mm-hmm. a lot of factories that have to close down because their workers go home. Uh, it just it 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 really is um, it's going to be hard to get a very clear and I think comprehensive picture until probably March or or even into the beginning of Q two. Certainly, the expectation is that you'll see a jump in 
services activity, like going to restaurants, retail sales, travel this month into February as people, you know, because generally around the new year, people spend a lot of money on those things. We'll see. Yeah. Right. I mean, again, it looks like if you, you know, there's folks just because the data around like the case, the case rate, it's, it's so bad. You know, you've got folks who are looking at alternative data, like Bloomberg did something with subway data where they looked at the subway usage in, I think, 11 top cities and sort of charted which cities look like they're suddenly recovering, um, you know, because there's more ridership. You, you can certainly see it. You know, you, you see activity on the streets is picked up in places like Beijing and Shanghai. I mean, a lot of people, even if they didn't get sick over the sort of around Christmas, they just didn't go out. So, so it was almost like several mm-hmm. of these cities were in a lockdown, even though they weren't because people were either homesick or they were trying to avoid getting sick. Now people, I mean, people want to get their lives back. Just like, I mean, look, look what happened here in other countries, right? You know, nobody, nobody's happy. Right. And so if you, and if you've been sick and if you've recovered, a lot of people think, okay, I'm not, I can't get it now. I'll be fine. And so you go out and go back and live your life normally. And so I think, you know, the, some of the bigger stuff like around real estate, you know, the things that are, have a, you know, large impact on Chinese economy, We'll see. But investors, you know, stocks are up. Investors tend to look out six months or longer. And so the mm-hmm. assumption is that, you know, again, you sort of abstract away the pain and suffering, the human level, and six six months from now, the economy should be um, relatively back to normal. And the government, because it's it's so damaged after COVID, the government's, the assumption is the government's going to have to do a whole bunch of things in terms of various friendly and stimulative policies that, you know, will give it a chance to be sort of going closer to gangbusters by the second half of this year. We'll, we'll see. But I think that's right. what a lot of investors are arguing. Right. It just feels like it's way too early to really gauge anything uh, as we sit here today. And certainly like that first month when COVID is ravaging the country, I wouldn't read anything into that economic data. But um, yeah, I, I, I think that's um, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> It just it 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 will come back to some higher level of activity. It has to, but I think you know we still also aren't fully grasped the damage that the COVID policies have done, especially the dynamic zero COVID, and just the the challenges that so many levels of the Chinese government have in terms of finances. Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, speaking of the challenges more generally, I want to read one note from Xi's New Year's address. Quote, since COVID-19 struck, we have put the people first and put life first all along. Following a science-based and targeted approach, we have adapted our COVID response in light of the evolving situation to protect the life and health of the people to the greatest extent possible. Officials and the general public, particularly medical professionals and community workers, have bravely stuck to their posts through it all. With extraordinary efforts, we have prevailed over unprecedented difficulties and challenges, and it has not been an easy journey for anyone. We have now entered a new phase of COVID response where tough challenges remain. Everyone is holding on with great fortitude, and the light of hope is right in front of us. Let's make an extra effort to pull through as perseverance and solidarity mean victory. Um, It sort of seems like he's, he's declaring victory on the first phase of their COVID policies and also trying to sell the second phase of the COVID policies. What did you make of the New Year's address in general? Um, so, you know, I think it was, it, it was, it was sort of tuned towards listeners who are going through difficult times. Um, mm-hmm. And it was trying to be, you know, the sort of rally around the, we, we, you know, this is a tough time. We've been through tough times. We will get through this together if everybody works, you know, works towards the same goal. Um, there's no official and there never will be, as long as she's around, an official recognition that this was, a, there were any mistakes. It's, you know, there's a saying that the party uses to sort of basically go from victory to victory. Um, th- there's also, uh, you know, the, the one of the polyp members, the, this guy Chen Wenqing, who runs the uh, security services, a legal system, had a meeting after Christmas. Uh, and it was, you know, there's a very brief readout of the meeting of his, the, the commission he runs that oversees those sectors. Um, but there was, um, it was very clear that it said, you know, the policies, the policies basically before were totally correct. And the policy now is totally correct. Um, right. And so, you know, and, 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 and so I think that, um, 
It's, and if you're a Chinese citizen, it's got to be just head spinning because the, the policy before was sacrifice for the good of the state. And now it's almost like an American style personal responsibility approach. And I just I it it is head spinning. Yeah, it's yeah. like the dramatic shift is just crazy still. And the thing, you know, and again, the, the reasons they shifted, you know, I, I really don't think they had a choice. Right. And had written about it before where they, they had it. They had basically they were in an impossible situation. The thing that is so frustrating and is so tragic is that they didn't prepare. Right. right. They you know, they they didn't have enough. For example, there there wasn't enough ibuprofen and paracetamol because during the, the tougher covid policy period, you couldn't buy that stuff. So pharmacies didn't stock it and the factories didn't make it. And then all of a sudden, everybody wanted it, and no one had reached out to these manufacturers and said, you know, ramp up ibuprofen production or, you totally. know, or, or ramp up other medicine production that people will need over the next couple of months as we reopen. And so just something didn't, something didn't happen in the system or wasn't allowed to happen where it was almost like because this dynamic zero COVID policy was, it was the policy from on high that to, to even talk about the possibility that it might shift was almost like sacrilegious or, or politically incorrect in a very sort of in a political system where being politically incorrect has a much higher um, uh, ramifications and much yeah. higher penalties. And so they, that's interesting. The, yeah. It just, it just was on. And then all of a sudden it shifted and, and you know, there are plenty of reports of the local officials I had no idea there was going to be a shift. It was, it was news to them. Right. I mean, they were all shocked. And so you just end up with a situation where you, you, you know, you, they're just, and it just goes back to this idea. Well, we all thought, you know, the party was, they're like great planners. They plan for a hundred year struggle for the U S right. And, you know, everything is about these long-term plans. And yet here, here we have this situation where people are dying because they couldn't even, you know, they, they, they couldn't let the medical system know to get ready. Right. It's, it's really tragic. Well, and and that's what would drive me insane if I had lived through the last couple of years, because this reopening would have been horrible for any country of China's size. And it was horrible at various points in the United States. But when you look back at the amount of money and manpower that was dedicated to dynamic zero COVID and and juxtapose that with the lack of preparation for all these challenges that were completely foreseeable, like just diverting some of that spending to, you know, antivirals or- Or, or ramping like, up the vaccination, vaccination campaign for all the vulnerable people who are getting really sick now, right? I mean, they, it's just, it's just, it's mystifying why they didn't prepare in advance. And, and the only thing I can come back to is it's just the political, the political system is such, the political environment, especially around the 20th Party Congress is such that- it was politically impossible for the system to do that because that was not how it just, I don't know. There's a problem with information flow. There's a problem with the decision-making process. There's a problem with sort of how decisions are made and, and it's, we're seeing some of the tragic consequences. Well, okay. So that's a good segue. I'll give you an example of a story about she's damaged credibility Quote, we can see very clearly that Xi Jinping is badly wounded in the sense that his prestige and authority have suffered tremendously, said Willie Lam, an expert in Chinese politics at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. His claim that the Chinese system is the best in the world is now subject to serious questioning. Lam said that for Xi, who had previously claimed victory over the pandemic, one, quote, particularly detrimental long-term threat is that the harm is being felt, quote, not only by ordinary people, not only the disadvantaged classes, but even senior cadres, their parents, and retired senior cadres, end quote. So do we have any idea whether something like that is actually going to be a meaningful consequence for Xi and and whether his credibility has, has been harmed in the eyes of either fellow party members or Chinese citizens? So, you know, we don't. We, we, I don't think there's, there's a whole list of reasons why it should damage his credibility and it should damage the party's credibility. I don't think they can be faulted for the realization that they had to reopen, mm-hmm. um, but they can be faulted for the process of the reopening and the damage that's caused. However, 
you can you can sort of look at this let's say okay in a normal political system therefore the per, the people in charge would somehow suffer consequences right you know you have to separate the fact that people are angry including some people who are influential and what really is going on inside the system i mean if this reopening had happened in august september uh before the 20th party congress I think it could have added some potential real political volatility and political variability into um, into that process. And perhaps mm-hmm. the 20th Party Congress would not have been such a victory for Xi Jinping when it comes to personnel, where it ran the table. Now, though, that he is, you know, we got to the 20th Party Congress. He got all his people where he wanted them for pretty much the most part, if not the entire part, including in the security services, including in the PLA. Where is the, I mean, you have to, you have to separate out the reasons why there should be problems for Xi with the, the mechanics of who and how. So who would cause these problems? How would they happen? And it isn't clear, you know, people, it's really easy to say, well, this is why he should be having problems. And yes, they screwed up, but it's, but it's really, it's a much bigger and more important task is to understand, well, okay. Is it really Xi's fault or is it the entire party? There are other leaders, you know, the 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 actual COVID, like they have this joint prevention group. I forget the exact name I should have in front of me, you know, that's run out of the state council. Well, who runs the state council? Li Keqiang, the premier, right? You have a vice premier, Sun Chunlan, who's basically been the COVID czar. There's a whole bunch of different places where blame could be apportioned that wouldn't necessarily fall on Xi if you have to get to the point where you apportion blame inside that system. And mm. so I just think that it's it's a... You know, given what we saw at the 20th Party Congress and the outcomes from that Congress to suddenly two months later turn around and say, oh, my God, you know, she's in trouble. Again, I look at that as more like, you know, one, the framework of analysis is maybe using the kind of framework you'd use when you're looking at, say, a a Western political system. And two, um, I do worry there's just a fair amount of wishful thinking because the alternative, you know, again, you, you would you would think there should be some accountability. You would you you would hope that that this could be a sign that you know once again that maybe he's not taking China in the right direction, which a lot of people do believe. Not just you know forget right. us foreigners inside China, but he's been able to you know work the system in a way that those people are not able to actually have a lot of influence. And so why does that change? And so it, it's certainly possible, um, but so far, and, and there's been a few op-eds and you know discussions and nothing I have seen, it doesn't mean I'd see it, but nothing I, would, I have seen is any sign of that and is any sign that there's anything more going on than wishful thinking. Right. Now, I personally hope I'm wrong. I would be, I would be the happiest person probably of all of our listeners to be wrong. Um, but I just I don't I don't see it, and you know it, it just goes back to how that system works, and and where is this accountability, and where where is this this pressure going to really come from? Because if there were going to be pressure, it would have happened before the twentieth party congress. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting because even just a couple months of conversations with you have trained me to look a little bit more skeptically at these stories predicting the Chinese government's downfall or she's the individual downfall. I hope because, I'm not leading you astray. Well, no, but it's, 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 you know, it's fascinating as a newcomer to this world because there's such a dearth of reliable information on the inner workings of the it's, CCP or the sentiments of the Chinese people themselves that the vacuum can be filled by all these different theories and takes. And there's not immediate, counterpoints that disprove them but uh it's also sort of based on not much substance no it's 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 really hard and then you'll get you'll get you know media reports where some anonymous source said something and you know you think okay well you have to trust that source but well you know there could also be somebody who doesn't like Xi Jinping who's leaking to the western journalists and and sort of helping shape this narrative we just it's really really hard and you know for me I go back to, I remember when I was in grad school in the early 90s, I'm dating myself, um, and my I, I did a master's, basically my focus was Chinese politics, and my professor, my advisor was um, this person named Alice Miller, who'd worked in the U.S. government for a long time, looking at like first Soviet and then, then PRC elite politics. 
And one of the classes they taught was, was part of it was basically reading, this was like 93, 94, reading Western media reports about PRC politics and then critiquing it. And I remember there was, it was great because back then, you know, Jiang Zemin had been in power. He'd taken over after 1989. He'd been in power for a few years. And there were all these reports that he was a potted plant. He was going nowhere. He had no power base. And yet, you know, he turned out that he became really one of the most powerful figures and, and was even more powerful than, than Xi Jinping's predecessor. You know, he's the one mm. who just died a, a couple months ago. But my, my, the broader point is I may be too jaded, but been through multiple cycles where you see so-and-so's in trouble, so-and-so's weakened, and it's, it's, it's looking through a very um, – we want – I think a lot of people want that because a lot of people, you know, it's, it's one way that you sort of – Okay, then if 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 she's in trouble, then maybe the party's in trouble. Then maybe China will change in ways that are less scary or less problematic for the U.S. or the yeah. West. Yeah, I mean, but, the last but there's five there's years. a difference between what you hope for, what you're projecting, as opposed to what you're actually what's actually going on. And and one of the things right. I've struggled with is is and I, I again I could be too jaded is just the the challenge of of separating out those two and focusing on what really looks like is going on versus what your maybe your personal preference is. Right. Yeah, well, and I, I certainly identify with anybody who wishes for a change. The last five or six years have, have been pretty unsettling. And the last three years have been mishandled and the reopening hasn't been handled all that well either. So uh, I understand the frustrations, but we'll we'll wait and see as to whether any of that actually matters. Um but for now, I have one pretty low stakes implication of the reopening. Uh, I'll read from Racing News 365. On Monday, we revealed that Just Events, promoter of the Chinese Grand Prix, is intent on hosting a 2023 edition of the race on the originally scheduled date of April 16th. According to sources, the go-ahead to negotiate for the return of the event with Formula One management was granted during a high-level meeting convened today in Shanghai. Racing News 365 understands that the meeting was chaired by Chinese Communist Party Secretary and member of the Politburo Chen Jining, who plans to showcase the Grand Prix as a return to sporting normality and international acceptance for the country. China lifts all quarantine restrictions for incoming travelers on January 8th, and the Grand Prix would mark the first major international sporting event in the country since the Winter Olympics in 2022. Um, and I just wanted to add that in as an update to something we discussed a couple months ago. I, I mentioned it on the podcast and said it seems impossible that the F1 race could actually go forward in Shanghai, given the COVID restrictions. Right. Um and now it's unclear as to whether it actually will go forward, but the Chinese government definitely wants it to happen. And F1 is listening. Um, it's it's hard to sort of like reorient the yeah. plans uh, this close to everything. And, and there are concerns about the the spread around China and its implications for drivers. But I don't know. I'm ready to take the podcast on the road. Well, if, I think if you, it does I mean, go forward. It's an hour and a half flight for Ben from Taipei. So you guys, you guys can cover it <laughs> on the scene. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be. And he's got, uh, you know, it's, but I think, no, it's, it would be good if they were able to hold it. That, that would be, um, uh, that, again, that would be a very positive sign of part of the sort of the reopening, the reconnection with the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's encouraging that it's even a possibility. Yeah. Um, so there are silver linings amidst all the the, the chaos right now. Um, to keep it moving, we had some diplomacy news. Wang Yi is now officially the director of the General Office of the Central Foreign Affairs Commission, and Chin Gong is being elevated from the U.S. ambassador in D.C. to the new foreign minister. So I have a very basic question for you about this news. What does the foreign minister do? Why is this significant with Chin Gong moving into that role? Well, I mean, the foreign minister is like the secretary of state. Um, okay. So he, he's the he's officially the the, the top state diplomat. Um, Wang Yi, who until recently was the foreign minister, he's now been promoted up into the top communist party position for foreign affairs. Um, so, you know, Wang Yi is on the Politburo. Chin Gong is on the Central Committee. Um, you know, Wang Yi is, you know, above Qing Gong in the hierarchy. Um, but from uh, and so there are times when the you know previously the head of the that party office was Yang Jiechi. So there were times when, like Yang Jiechi would meet with 
Secretary of State Blinken, for example, you were talking about U.S.-China diplomacy or uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan, um, but Wang Yi also would meet with Blinken. And, and so it's just it's just a more of a function of their system where you have the party apparatus and a state apparatus. And they, I mean, they're very mm. much blended together, but there are these distinctions. In the wake of this announcement, is this was another case where the lack of information created a room for a lot of different theories. I, I saw some people speculating that Chin Gong was sidelined by the Americans while he was in D.C., so that could be bad for U.S.-China relations. And then there are others who are hoping that Chin is a more moderate voice who could be somebody who de-escalates things. Do, do you have a thought on on what this means for the relationship? Um, I, you know, I, I think that in being ambassador to Beijing or to to D.C., it's a very difficult job. It's a... Um, it's not a super influential job in terms of you know policy around China from the U.S. is set in the White House. Policy around the U.S. from from Beijing is set um, in Beijing, and so you know I think ultimately, Qinggong will do what Xi Jinping wants him to do in terms of foreign policy, and and mm-hmm. he will follow the direction that is set from the top of the leadership about policy towards the U.S. policies towards towards other countries. You know, the there's this idea that, well, Qin Gong didn't get a bunch of access and therefore it was a wasted opportunity because maybe we could have, you know, built a better relationship and therefore might have accrued some benefit to U.S. diplomacy over time. I mean, one, I don't look I, I don't think that that it's totally accurate. I think that he had some access. Um, mm-hmm. He also had some was doing some things that basically were pissing off the White House and other people. And then also, you know, the other issue is why should the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. get more access to officials in the government than the U.S. ambassador to the PRC gets? Because the U.S. ambassador to the PRC, Nick Burns, um, is very constricted and limited in who he gets to talk to the PRC government. And so so there's wow. a fundamental sort of sort of diplomatic protocol reciprocity issue there. Um, there's also, I think, um, it's not like Xingang was not a known quantity to begin with. Um, and I just think there's a little bit of a myth that somehow um, the personal really matters right now. It, it, it certainly, um, you know, the Qinggong, I, he's, he's very personable and good when he wants to be. And he's a very good, he's a very good sort of people to people diplomat when he wants to be. I mean, you, you tweeted, or we talked about how he, um, he recently appeared at a Washington Wizards game and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sunk the free throw. It wasn't a pretty shot, but it went in. Well, let me ask, did, did the Wizards convince him to leave the United States forever? A one, one night with the Washington. No, that Wizards, would have been the commanders. That, that would have been, a, that would have been hanging out with like, with like, uh, Carson Wentz and, 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 oh and Dan Snyder. And he would have been like, oh my God, this place is falling apart. I got to get out of here. Um, <laughs> An afternoon at the worst stadium in America. It was very impressive that yeah. he, and he's also, he's, he's also shown up at, um, uh, hockey, the Capitals games. And I think there's the, 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 I don't know if it's the embassy or the sort of some some organ in the the PRC government has I think spent money sponsoring events at like they do like a New Year's event at the um what do they call it here sorry the Capital One Arena is that okay, is that the, yep right so so um but it was good and you, you know we talked about before right I mean there is a history here when when the Wizards used to be the Bullets the Bullets went to China in what like seventy eight or seventy nine. There's probably some YouTube video of the bullets uh, visit to China. We could dig <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, exporting West Unseld outlet passes. Yes. I, I like that. But, but um, so, but so, but so, so, Chingo, so anyway, though, to, back to the back to the question though is I think that um, you know, and Chingong has been on this. You know, he wrote he wrote a nice I mean, a couple of an op ed in the Washington Post yesterday. It was sort of a and he's tweeted sort of nice things about Americans and you know the the Chinese are they're trying on every level to I think reset. You know, as they re- are re-engaging with the world, as they come out of their COVID policies, they're trying to sort of reset some of the relationships. Um, it, it, what is, from everything I can see, and again, this is what's public and just folks I talk to, the reset is a surface level repositioning. It's not an actual substantive shift in some of their policies. Right. And Changing so, what they say, not what they do. Right. And, and, and so, or how they say it. Or the tone, mm-hmm. but so the fundamental things, and, and especially when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship, the fundamental structural issues are there. There isn't no. There are no signs of any shifts on the Chinese side, and and so, um, 
so the back to your question, you know, there's a lot of been a bunch of reports about, oh, if only the U.S. had been nicer to Qinggong, then things could be better. Again, I, you know, I'm not really buying it. I mean, and again, I don't, yeah. I don't, I think that Qinggong is a fairly well-known quantity. I don't, I don't know that whining and dining him and being super nice to him would have necessarily given us a lot more insight or a lot more future access than what the U.S. officials would normally get when he's foreign minister, just because it's their U S officials. Right. Right. Because it's, you know, the kind of environment we're in, it's not like, Oh, I'm going to call up my buddy chin. Right. And we're going to go have some whiskeys and solve the problems. Right. I well, think we'd it, like to think that's the way it works, but that that's not how the system works right now. And it's probably accurate to say that China wants to revert to what the relationship with the United States looked like five or six years ago. Uh, but the reality is one of the reasons they're in a different place is because the Chinese government under Xi has been pretty combative. And um, it's another indication, though, that there there are real consequences that the CCP is experiencing at, as a result of all of the economic slowdown domestically. And then, you know, the sanctions are harmful. And so I, I don't blame them for trying to change. No, and, and you know, they're, they're, they've been for a few months now, they've been really trying to push on this idea of finding back channels, finding people, you know, it's sort of the Kissinger model, um, finding, you know, someone or some group that can help sort of be the back channel sort of, sort of intermediary to help them. Which worked for many, many years. Right. But the challenge, the challenge is that's great. Talking is fine. But the challenge again goes back to if the, if the back channel private position of the PSR government, PRC government is the same as the public one, which is effectively all the problems of the relationship are the fault of the U S and everything will be fine. If the U S returns to the correct course and takes the correct attitude, it doesn't matter who the intermediary is. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so that's where, Again, we can hope that maybe there'll be some shift, some ability to to have some shifts, some more positive trajectory relationship. But again, so far, and this goes back to the other question about Xin Gong and why there, there isn't any indication that. And Wang, you know, he he gave a he gave a, a talk on Christmas Day, and then he wrote an uh, an essay in the sort of the most important journal for the for the Communist Party or the Central Committee called Qiu Shi, Seeking Truth, um, sort of effectively laying out the achievements of the foreign policy or, you know, Xi Jinping thought on diplomacy and, and sort of what the, what the priorities are going forward. And, you know, when it comes to the U.S., when it comes to stuff like Russia, there's no indication from a, from a public perspective of any sort of a shift. Mm-hmm. And so it's more like, okay, do, can they find the people or convince enough people that we're reengaging, we're back, we've changed our tone, things are different, we should sort of figure stuff out. And then are there going to be people in the U.S. government or around the U.S. government who say, this is different now, we can go back, we can fix these things. And, and I think that's, that is under, there, there's, there's a lot of efforts around that from, from both sides. We'll see how far they go because I, I really fear that the disappointment is going to be when the realization comes that actually the Chinese side, they're not offering anything substantive in terms of a shift. It's right. more like, and- this is how bad it could get. You know, we've waited you out. It's basically like the Chinese have just kept telling the U.S. you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and hoping that the U.S. gets exhausted or enough people say this is crazy, we have to we have to fix it, and then the U.S. makes the moves to fix it. And the U.S. is less receptive to the Kissinger type diplomacy that maybe happened over the last twenty years or so. Today, more people in Washington look skeptically at messages that China is changing yeah. and 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 that's not America's shift. I, I think a lot of that is related to actions that she has taken. Well, over it's the just last yeah, no, the, the world the world has changed, China has changed. It's just it's a it's a the relationship has changed, the relative power balance in the relationship has changed. I mean, it's just it's just a it's a different era as right. she keeps saying. It's a new well, era. Speaking of a different era, we'll close with this. TikTok which continues to make me feel 80 years old. Um, (laughs) From CNN Business, TikTok user data from two journalists who worked for the Financial Times and BuzzFeed was accessed while ByteDance employees were investigating potential employee leaks to the press, according to the company. The employees involved, two based in the United States and two in China, were fired following an investigation conducted on behalf of the company by an outside law firm. The CEOs of TikTok and ByteDance revealed to employees in two separate emails Thursday. 
And then from CNBC, President Joe Biden approved a limited TikTok ban last week when he signed the 4,126-page spending bill into law. The ban prohibits the use of TikTok by the federal government's nearly 4 million employees on devices owned by its agencies, with limited exceptions for law enforcement, national security, and security research purposes. Um, So it is now banned among government employees, at least on government devices. And the scandal with the TikTok user data and tracking journalists it was slipped in right before Christmas, like an all-time news drop. And I will be very interested to see how the United States government responds here. Uh, but again, we're looking at a government-influenced entity. I mean, they the Chinese government has a seat on one, one of the boards. Um, and ByteDance is, is the parent company based in China. TikTok is based here. Uh, this is another case where it seems like they're costing themselves the benefit of the doubt with what might have been a more sympathetic audience. What do you? What, what's your reaction to all, uh, all of it? I think it? you're 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 sugarcoating it. I mean, I think honestly, I mean, what happened was basically ByteDance, TikTok from from China, I think from Beijing, was surveilling American journalists to um, tracking their uh, going back and looking at their um, their location data, their whereabouts, to see if they could connect those journalists to any TikTok employees in terms of location proximity to then go after those employees as the leakers to these journalists. And so, um, and, and you know, it's like, it's like they did everything they say they didn't do and couldn't do. And, had, mm-hmm. you know, it turns out they're not only are they lying about it, but they actually did it. And they did it to American journalists. They did it from China. They did it not only from the independent scare quotes or air quotes TikTok, but from ByteDance, which right is supposed to be like a separate entity. So it's like complete, like it basically blows up the entire facade that ByteDance government relate or TikTok government relations and and PR has been trying to create in DC about this sort of separate entity, separate company, independent stuff. And so I think ultimately it. Um, you know, there, there, the, the, there's been a underway. You know, the 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 Trump ban didn't work. The Biden administration took it on to try and work out some sort of a deal. That's um, been underway for a while. There's been you know public reporting that there's been dis, you know disagreements inside the Biden administration about whether it's too you know whether it's too strong or they should soften it. Um, this latest revelation, I mean, and again, you pointed out it's not a coincidence that it came out right before Christmas, right? Um, is like like it, I think it's going to be nearly impossible for the sort of the the softer the 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 folks in the Biden administration arguing for sort of a more um, a, a, a sort of a better deal for TikTok to get their way now, and I yeah. think it it really is more likely going to lead to um, some sort of a a forced sale or worse for TikTok in the U.S. Because I mean, what they did it doesn't matter. You know, they hired I think they've hired a big DC law firm and they did this quote unquote independent investigation and they put out this apology. But again, it's like okay, but you said you didn't do this and you couldn't do this. I mean, you've been lying. It's just right. like it's it's like it completely destroys any remaining credibility that these that this these folks had in any quarters of the U.S. government. They don't have it on Capitol Hill. Right. But they were still in parts of the Biden administration. They were willing to talk to them and sort of maybe take them, you know, work out a deal. I think this makes that nearly impossible now. Yeah, I mean, I I do as well. And and credit to the the legal advisors that had them trying to bury this a couple (laughs) days before Christmas. They they didn't do it on actual Christmas Eve at like 11. Well, that was a Saturday. That would have been a little too obvious. right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They did the best they could. Um, yeah, I mean, my feeling on all of it is that a, it, it's inevitable that it'll, it will be banned eventually. And if you're trying to make the argument that you should ban it based on prior actions of TikTok or ByteDance leadership, I think that case gets a little bit thin, but if you're asking whether it's a good idea to have the most influential social media app in America be controlled by a hostile foreign power or semi-hostile foreign power like that's a much simpler question with a pretty clear answer so and and, and that is where this latest revelation really blows up the argument that they the, the chinese side didn't have any influence 
right. or couldn't do these things with with the app. And, and so that, so again, you just like responsible policymakers can't give the company the benefit of the doubt at this point, e- even if they thought they could three weeks ago. And so that yeah. really puts tick, TikTok by dance in a tough spot. But again, you know, it is unfortunate that you know the the TikTok is a is a the biggest sort of cultural technology like media export success from the PRC ever, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's an amazing product. I I hate it. I you know I don't like our kids using it because not because <laughs> of the China connection, because it you can really just sort of see their brains melting as they watch it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I've experienced the same. Yeah, I mean we all you know, but um, I, I think that ultimately. You know, the U.S. Need, shouldn't be dealing with this on a sort of an ad hoc company specific basis. The U.S. needs some sort of, you know, body of data privacy l- law like the EU has or frankly, like the PRC has to sort of deal with these issues on a on a more than just a case by case basis. Because there's another Chinese app that it's not the same as TikTok, but it has the Trump administration also went after it. And it has a lot of potential problems, too, in terms of influence and information controls and censorship, which is WeChat. Mm-hmm. And, and so, the, so, so it's just, but it's unfortunate. Again, it goes back to sort of the broader, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that these apps, you know, the U S and China relations and it's such that, that, that these apps really face so much pressure in this country, but we have to remember, or I'll just ask a question to our listeners, which U S social media app is big in China? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and why? Don't hold your because, breath on an answer there. And why? Because the Chinese look at them as having all sorts of potential national security risks and the ability to be manipulated from the US side, et cetera, et cetera. So so the Chinese policymakers look at these apps in a certain way and understand the potential risks. So why would we then assume that that's not how they look at the apps when they're when the Chinese apps that are right. then operating the US? The I mean, this is the this is the dilemma and the and sort of the really sort of bad um sort of cycle we're in, but you also, you can say it's bad and it's a dumb, but you also have to deal with the reality. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky because as far as reciprocity is concerned, we don't want to just use China's behavior to justify anything that the United States will do because I'm a supporter of free market principles and openness. And I think that will serve us well over the next 50 years, um, including in the competition with China. But at the same time, where you draw the line is when there is a real threat. And it's interesting because I think a lot of the ban discussion centers on the the dangers of TikTok as a surveillance tool. And they were surveilling a reporter who's done a lot of great work on this, Emily Baker White. More than one, but yeah, she's done great work. Yeah, all year. And um, alongside that, though, it's it's the ability to pull the levers to promote certain news stories and de-emphasize other stories yeah. that would concern me as like the, the foremost long term threat. And I don't even know if that TikTok has done that on a meaningful scale, but it's a risk to allow. Well, but, um, but if you're if you're if if if, if you sort of look at the worst case scenario and you're a hostile actor and you have this platform that you can use when you really want to use it. That's the kind of lever. I mean, this is, again, this is, this is sort of, I think where if, if you're like the folks who are looking at it from a national security perspective, where sort of they play out the scenarios, certainly it's not something you use every day. You would use it when it mattered or at a moment in the relationship or at a moment of crisis when you wanted to do something. Right. And so then the question is, you know, and, and so then you have to go back to, I mean, we know that any social media company can can influence the content people see. I mean, look at Facebook, look at Instagram, you know, YouTube, et cetera. So the mm-hmm. question then ultimately goes back to can you can you trust the intentions and can you trust the promises of the other of the other company? And this goes back to the beginning of this discussion, which is what happened with these reporters. Again, it's it's not just that this was bad, it's just basically they did everything they said they couldn't and wouldn't do. Right. So there's zero, they have zero credibility and you just cannot with a straight face argue that you can believe anything they say going forward. And so that, that's what's tragic for the folks at TikTok and ByteDance who actually, I think some of them were sincerely trying to reach a deal. Oh yeah. I'm sure there were elements of the company that thought that there's some sort of compromise or solution that would make this yeah. clean no, for it's, everybody. It, it, it's, it's just, it's a disaster for the company. Yeah. Well, I, I don't imagine this will be the last we hear of the TikTok controversy in the months to come. So we'll continue monitoring the situation. Um, 
And for now, Bill, it's been great to get back together. I will post a link to the tweet of Chin Gong's free throw in the show notes, along with all sorts of other links that we have discussed on this episode. Uh, and I look forward to keeping it rolling in 2023. Absolutely. Me too. Happy to hear everyone. And uh, uh, it's uh, good to be back. I missed you. All right. And Tashi misses you. We I had to do this one remotely, Tashi. but Tashi, <laughs> Tashi sends his regards. That's right. He's there somewhere. All right. We'll talk next week. We'll come back uh, on our regular schedule. We'll be publishing on Wednesday. 